Hello and welcome to another episode of Eat This Podcast with me, Jeremy Chalfers. Today, I'm talking to Peter Hertzman in San Francisco. Peter's been a guest a couple of times before talking about knives and whether recipes are accurate, two of his favorite topics. And the reason we're talking this time is that he's got a new book out which combines both of those passions with a third, education. The book is called 50 Ways to Cook a Carrot, which prompted me to ask an absolutely obvious first question. What's the point of a cookbook dedicated entirely to carrots? Uh, there is no point to it, because it's not a cookbook dedicated to carrots. It's a cookbook dedicated to cooking methods, and the carrot is just a foil for it. So the, let me give you a little background on, on how this got started. One of the things I do in, in work, when I work with chefs or I work in students in a professional cooking school is I challenge them with the idea of to, to choose an ingredient, and I mean like a, a basic ingredient like a vegetable or meat or something, and to quickly come up with 10 different ways to cook it. And a couple of years ago, I decided to uh, challenge myself with that because I'd always challenged students, but I'd never did it myself. And I picked a carrot. Uh, mainly because it's readily available. There's, uh, uh, you know, it, it's something I can go down. It's cheap. I can buy 25 pounds of them for a few dollars. And I sat down and four hours came out with 104 different ways to cook carrots. And when I started doing that and getting rid of the ones that were too far in left field, I came up with about 57. And on that, I wrote a book proposal it's actually a, um, a lot more than 50 recipes if you count all the different kind of variations. Oh, yeah. A lot of the portions are quite small, but, but were you ever worried about developing carrot anemia while you were testing them all? <laughs> you have to eat a lot more carrots before you turn uh, orange, and uh, from all I read, it's only a temporary condition. You're quite fastidious in introducing the carrot. You're quite fastidious about referring to baby-cut carrots rather than baby carrots. What's the difference? This goes back to one of my uh, pet peeves in a lot of uh, ingredients uh, where these marketing terms get get created. So a baby-cut carrot is a processed food, if you will, although lightly processed. They take uh, carrots that don't meet uh, quality standards or where they just grow whole fields of them for it, and they whittle them down to make that shape that are now called baby cut carrots. There is an item called baby carrots, and you can go to the store and often buy uh, baby carrots. Uh, they're very expensive for what you get for it, but they you know, look nice on a plate, especially in a high-end restaurant. And you have these baby cut carrots, which is like uh, almost to the point where there's people who eat those but won't eat a regular carrot. Real baby carrots, when I've had them in a high-end restaurant, are often served with the carrot tops. Now, you, I've, I've, I've sort of seen recipes for carrot tops, um, but to be honest, I've, I've never quite seen the point. You, you made a bunch of carrot top pesto, um, but you didn't seem all that enthusiastic about it. Well, the problem with the carrot tops, okay, there's, there's the stems and there's the leafy green part. 
the stems are like hunks of toothpick, and they tried. They just didn't uh, couldn't get the cellulose to break down at all in that. It was uh, more like uh, lignum than uh, uh, cellulose. But the leaves are quite nice. The problem with it, it takes a lot of them. Uh, it takes a lot of labor to separate them from the stems. But the biggest problem was that once you, they break the tops off, they can't sell them. They're considered waste and they can't be sold. It's a weird regulation. And think about the marketing side of a carrot with the greens on it. The greens take twice the amount of space that the carrot itself does. And they're probably a lot more fragile. They're very fragile, and they uh, don't, you know, they turn brown and stuff very fast compared to the carrot itself. There's quite a lot of molecular gastronomy: agar, guar gum, xanthan gum, methyl cellulose, even kind of good old gelatin. Um, those aren't the kinds of things you find in a modern kitchen, unless it's a very modern kitchen. At least you don't find them as raw ingredients. Uh, are people going to have a hard time using them? Okay, so I use xanthan gum, gelatin, and agar. I didn't use any methyl cellulose that I remember. Or no, you uh, did, you did, you did. There's a in there's, which one? There's, there's, oh, oh, that's gosh. in that's in the dried the crackers. Yes. Yeah. 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 I uh, take that back. So xanthan gum is. Uh, Bob's Red Mill is the brand I use. You can buy it, and uh, I'm not sure it's considered a natural product. It's it's, it's grown, but it's uh, it's very safe, and it's very I, – I, I use it for a lot of things. It's actually uh, a quite nice thing. You, so you can get it, I'm pretty sure, at Whole Foods. I know you can get it on Amazon. So for Americans, it's it's not a problem. It's not so much the availability that interests me. It's whether people picking up your book – Okay, it's not a cookbook, but they want to try some of these these methods of cooking things. Whether they're going to feel comfortable um, using these chemicals that they, I believe most people don't associate those, they don't know how much those are used in the foods they buy. Uh, you have a point. If somebody is interested in, with the method, then, you know, they'll try to do it. That's, you know, I started this stuff because I got curious, not because I, it was an assignment or something like that. Uh, it's a curiosity that I think people working on their cooking uh, will, will follow. So um, in connection with the, the molecular stuff, the, the gums, and, but, but not just with that, there's, some, there's a fair amount of, of maths involved in some of the methods because you're explaining how much of things to use and, and encouraging people, I think, to adjust the quantities to what they, what they need. Um, but nevertheless, a, a lot of people are scared of maths. So did you put it in specifically to say, look, this isn't actually that difficult? I didn't give it that much thought to be. <laughs> it's... Yeah, yeah, there are people who avoid math. One of the things I would do uh, with some students is I would ask them quickly, you know, tell me one-third or three-quarters. And, you know, people with college educations could not yeah, answer that question. Cooking, many recipes in order to succeed, you need to have the proportions correct. And it's not the absolute amounts. It's the proportions that are correct. Uh, and that's what I tend to stick with because, 
the simple problem of uh, you want to make a, um, a dish and the recipe says it serves four and you have five people coming for dinner, how do you adjust that? You double Versus, it. Versus <laughs> and have leftovers. Well, I don't like leftovers. Uh, but what I, d I do is, you know, in these, like a lot of these, which are almost single portion or for two, uh, it makes it much easier to make that uh, correction. Yeah, and you have to do a bit of maths. That's right. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm okay. I'm with you on this. I'm with okay. you on this. Let me back up here a second. I have published papers on, you know, changing the curriculum in professional cooking schools because I don't think they really teach people how to cook. They teach people at best how to do recipes. I've had, you know, I, I taught for 10 years at a recreational, uh, you know, in an implement store, a cookie, cookware store, and they were always at loggerheads with me because I wanted to teach methods and they wanted to teach recipes. And the students would come in wanting to learn a recipe for dish X. And they'd go home and I'd see them a little while later. I said, did you try dish X? And they said, well, I couldn't do it because I was missing that eighth of a teaspoon of thyme or something like that. And uh, I found almost universally took everything as having to be, quote, precise, even though they didn't understand the precision they were working with, and had to have that exactness. And my point of this is that if you know how to braise, you can braise anything. So the idea is, what are the principles of braising? The concept that it's a small amount of liquid, it's in a covered pot, it's over low heat, so the liquid is just at a, uh, enough so it's putting off steam, and you're steaming the food in the top, and... Uh, Simmering it in the bottom. Actually, you you go into a lot of detail about what I would probably just call boiling. I mean, you've got you've got stewing, you've got steaming, you've got braising. Um, you've just explained braising, but um, which is appropriate when? For vegetables, it's it's probably less critical because you have a situation where you have to get the, in order to tenderize something that's high in cellulose. You have to get it up to the point where the cellulose begins to break down. You have to get it up to, to that temperature of 85 degrees Celsius. It won't break down at 84. I tried doing sous vide for like eight hours at 83 degrees or 82 degrees Celsius, and the carrot was just as crunchy as it ever was. That's different when you get to proteins like meat. That's a, Knowing how to braise allows you to do that, and it allows you then when you read a cookbook that calls a dish braised and the first in, or the last instruction before you put it under heat is to cover it with liquid, you know that you're not braising it. So things like stewing and it's really, uh, you know, poaching versus boiling. You know, when I think of boiling, I think of full blast. What about equipment, though? I mean, I, I, I started to get the feeling, oh, my God, I don't have a juicer. I have an immersion blender, but I don't have a liquidizer. I went through in the end, after I'd read the book, I went through about 20 of the recipes require equipment like, the, I mean, a lot of them require the juice. And carrot juice is not an easy thing to obtain. Okay. Well, first of all, it's 20 methods, not 20 recipes. Yeah. But yeah. 
Well, actually, I'm, I'm, giving you, I'm giving you the benefit of the doubt because <laughs> okay. some of the methods have got an alternative where you can do it either with one form of carrot or with another. So right. on those, I said, okay, I could make this with, with, with out the equipment. Yeah, I, I agree. It's, and there's just some methods you can't do if you don't have the equipment to produce it. Now, carrot juice, if you, if you want to actually do it with carrots, you can buy, you know, you go to the local stores here at least, and you can buy a pint or a quart of carrot juice. It's not cheap, but you can buy it. Uh, a lot of things I was doing with not the juice, but the, what, the waste product of making the, the juice. Yeah. And, you know, in order to produce the powder. I would say if somebody's interested, what they do is you keep your eyes open. You don't have to have an expensive juicer. I, mine is a Hamilton Beach or something like that. That is, you know, if, the, you know, you looked at ratings, it would be below the bottom rating probably. But I got it for $24 at a department store. Having a, a, a high-speed liquidizer, or as we call them in the U.S., a blender, that's a much more expensive deal. And even things like food processors, I found when I was teaching them how many, it was amazing how many people didn't have a food processor. They're just, you know, at some point, everything can't be done by hand. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I'm not, juic I'm not <laughs> juicing a carrot by hand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think if you want to do, you know, if you're going to make a syrup, you need juice. Yeah, yeah. But the f reality is you don't have to make, you know, carrot syrup. You can make syrups out of other things. Uh, so there's two syrups in there. There's one which is the simple syrup style, 50% uh, juice to 50% um, sugar by weight. And that's my source of that actually was the Rose Gastronomique, the original one. Once you've turned it into a syrup, you can use that syrup to make a soda simply by adding it, that one-to-one -one with uh, sparkling mineral water. The other type of syrup is like what we think of with maple syrup. Well, in the case of carrots, carrots 4.5% sugar. Maple is only in the order of about 1%, so it even takes less liquid to make the syrup. But you essentially boil it down to drive off the liquid till you have mostly sugar. Interesting thing about the carrot syrup, it tastes more like maple syrup than it does like carrots. There is a slight carrot flavor to it, but what you're doing is you're oxidizing the sugar, you're caramelizing it, and you have all the flavonoids that come out from caramel that really dominate. What, are the, what do you think are the most important general tips that people might get from the book? Uh, relax when you're cooking. <laughs> I don't say it specifically. Hopefully I present everything in a relaxed manner. Uh, my observation from the, you know, couple thousand students that I've taught is that most of them are way too tense when they cook. I have a friend who is a natural cook. She does fantastic stuff, but she insists on following someone's recipe and then when it doesn't work, she blames herself for it, even though it's the recipe. You can see from the beginning the recipe was bad. And I keep telling her that she needs to just sort of let go. And just she's my age, so she's been cooking for 50 years. Uh, she knows everything she needs to know to just to go ahead and cook. 
my goal is for people, if you learn enough methods and you learn about the ingredients, then you can just go ahead and, and cook. You don't need a recipe. Even when you say, oh, gee, you know, I had such and such and I'd like to have something similar, you can go at it and say, it's fine. You know, I'll just go and, and make my version of it and you'll make it and it'll be right every time. That's, that's a, a perfect introduction to my final question. Um, almost exactly a year ago, you and I had dinner at Ben Reed's Edinburgh Food Studio. Yes. And a, a totally wonderful dinner. And he served us a smashed roasted carrot, which was just absolutely sublime. I was really hoping, I know the book isn't a book of recipes, it's a book of <laughs> methods, but, you know, I wanted to find a, a Ben Reed smashed roast carrot method. So how did he do that? Uh, my guess is they roasted the carrots and then they smashed them afterwards. But I don't, I don't you know, I, I remember eating there, I don't remember each dish. Okay, so you say roast and then smashed and then re-roasted? No. See, the problem is you're not going to, a raw carrot, you're not going to smash. Right. Right. So you have to get it to the point where it's smashable. So what you could do is, I'm just thinking out loud now, yeah, not done this, is you could blanch them off or roast them off, for, um, boil them off first to get them to the point they're soft, then smash it, and then put it in a really, really hot oven to get that roasting effect. But carrots themselves roast very fast. It's like 10, 15 minutes and the carrots are roasted. So you could ostensibly maybe do it partway, take them out, smash them, get a little more color on it, or just roast it and then smash them and see if they're fine the way they are that way. You know, it's, it's up to the student to figure this one out. <laughs> the, the thing is, what do you smash it with? Oh, a mallet. Yeah, a, a mallet or a meat pounder is what I was thinking of there. What to smash it with is not my problem. <laughs> Peter Hertzman, talking about just some of the stuff in his new book, 50 Ways to Cook a Carrot. The book is published by Prospect Books, and it's already available in the UK and Europe, and probably other places too, but not yet in the US. It's due out there in January next year, but you can always pre-order. And if you don't want to wait, and you fancy trying your luck, Prospect Books has generously agreed to give a copy to one lucky winner. As usual, the draw will be restricted to people who subscribe to my newsletter. If you're already a subscriber, you don't need to do anything else. If you're not, go ahead and sign up at the website, eatthispodcast.com. Next Monday, that's the 28th of October, I'll pick one person at random from the list of subscribers. I should also say that after moaning about the equipment you need, I realized that if I were really desperate to make something with carrot juice, I could just grab a handful of carrots and head down to our lovely corner bar. I'm sure they'd be willing to put them through their super-duper industrial strength juicer. Anyway, that's enough for me for this episode. I'm off to find a mallet. Thanks, as always, to everybody who supports the show with a donation. Please do consider joining them. Also, it's been a while since I asked for ratings and reviews wherever you get your podcasts. It all helps. 
For now, though, from me, Jeremy Jurfus, and Eat This Podcast, goodbye, and thanks for listening.